Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please do get in touch at hello at hopeharrogate.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. We're going to dive right in. We're a little bit late. And when I tell you what we're talking about today, you're going to see why we're diving straight in. Because over the next two weeks, we are considering the story of Nehemiah chapter five. Uh, And in particular, what we want to do is look at what God is saying to us through this passage about two of the most significant justice issues of our day. And so today that is race. uh, And next week, it is the environment. And this is all part of our ongoing series in Nehemiah, Building a Community of Hope. Hopefully, you're going to see how that fits in as um, we go through this morning. And this morning's title is really this, Justice, Race. And we're going to apply Nehemiah 5 to current cries of injustice in our world. And hopefully that will make more sense as we go along. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you get it out? Turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. You might have noticed last week we skipped This chapter, we we did four and then six, and there's a reason for that. We'll come back to it later. Uh, Kelvin's got a magnifying glass, I think. I'm going to blow this up as big as possible, therefore, so that you can see the words which are to come as we read together Nehemiah chapter five. That big enough for you, Kelvin? I can see gallery mode is a powerful tool on Zoom. Uh, let's, Let's read together. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest and give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain new wine and olive oil. You might think 1% sounds a very reasonable level of interest, but that is probably monthly. So it's more like a 12% annual interest, just for the record. We will give it back, they said, 
and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, so this is the whole time I was in Jerusalem the first time, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not require acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10, ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. So, it's so an interesting story. Let me recap real quick for us. Number one, the people are hungry. Building the wall means they can't farm, and so they haven't got any food. What's more, it's expensive to buy food because it seems there's a famine. On top of that, the people aren't making any money because they're building the wall uh, and there is a heavy tax imposed by the Persian king. And so this all means that some of the Jews, perhaps many of the Jews, are having to borrow money in order to buy food and to pay taxes. They are borrowing this money from wealthy Jews uh, and they are taking the hungry Jews fields and vineyards olive groves, even houses as a pledge. Uh, and what that means, I guess, in, in our terms, is this is more of a pawnbroker arrangement than a mortgage. So they're borrowing money and they're taking the things from them uh, so that they are guaranteed that they're going to repay. The problem is that this has created a vicious circle. Their source of income and security has gone, so they can't generate more income to repay their debts and they've hit this point where they've got to sell their children as slaves. That's what's going on in the beginning of this story. And so unsurprisingly, there is a great outcry from the men and women. And just an aside for your amusement or interest, this is the only time I found in Ezra or Nehemiah where the women are active. Interesting. There is a cry from the men and the women. And Nehemiah hears their cry and he has a choice. He can, number one, he can feel their pain. Number two, 
he can be defensive and dismissive. And it's worth noting that it would be very understandable if he were defensive or dismissive because he is one of the wealthy Jews involved in lending money. Although we see that he probably wasn't taking pledge or interest for it, but he was lending people money. He says so in the passage. And so this great outcry of injustice is against people like him. It's against a system that he's involved with and advantaged by. And in this moment, friends, everything is at stake. Everything is at stake. The last two weeks we've seen in chapters four and six, opposition from outside the city. Sambalat, Tobiah, they're making threats, they're threatening violence, they're trying to undermine him. There's incredible opposition outside the city. And Rachel and Dan over the last fortnight have really helpfully shown us how to understand that and how to respond to that wonderful talks from chapters four and six. But here in the middle, in chapter five, we have another problem. We have opposition, we have a threat within the city. And I want to say that we need to understand the very fabric of the people of God is under threat in this moment. Everything is at stake. Injustice is getting in the way of completing the mission. And it's distorting their identity as the people of God. This is a high stakes moment. Nehemiah, really, he cannot turn a blind eye if he wants to complete the mission or if he wants to see the people of God restored. He has to choose to feel their pain and he does. And he's filled with compassion for their, for their plight. And he is very angry, he tells us, with the injustice of the wealthy. And he goes through three reasons why he is explaining that this is not right. Number one, he refers to the law. He says, you are charging your own people interest. It's in verse seven. What he's telling them is you are breaking the law. Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 to 27 say, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take their cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. That's all the covering they've got. What else can they sleep in? And then God says, when they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The first thing that Nehemiah points to is the law. The second thing is their identity. He says to them, to the wealthy Jews, friends, this is the opposite of who we are. Jewish identity is shaped more than anything else by one event. The Exodus, the moment where their God freed them from slavery in Egypt. That is the moment that it, it defines who they are. Even in this moment, they're being defined by the fact that they are being freed, in a sense, from the exile to Babylon and Persia. This is the people who have escaped that kind of slavery. We are a free people say the Jews. We are the liberated ones. And because of that, we liberate others. Nehemiah says we've been redeeming people who have been sold into slavery from our people. We've been buying them back. And here we find out that the reason they're in slavery at all is that you 
are putting their families in such a dire financial position that they've had to sell their children. This is the opposite of who we are, says Nehemiah. We're the ones who free people from slavery, not put them into slavery. Thirdly, he says, this is an awful witness. Verse nine, he says, shouldn't you avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? The people of God are supposed to be the prophetic example. They're supposed to be the model for the world to see how life should truly be. Instead, he says, your actions are making our enemies sneer at us. They're turning their noses up at us. They're laughing at us. It's the very opposite of our purpose. This is an awful witness. Ultimately, what looked like shrewd everyday business deals in secret in this moment in the Great Assembly looks shabby opportunism when it's brought into the light. And in verses 10 through 13, Nehemiah brings about change. He says, stop charging interest. Give back what you've taken. Recompense the unjust interest payments that you've taken. And the wealthy Jews, they agree. And they even say, we will not demand anything more from them. It's kind of ambiguous. I think what's happening there is they're writing off the debt themselves. They're going beyond what Nehemiah is forcing them to do. And Nehemiah's challenge, don't you fear God, is a reminder to them that their wealth is not their own. It's God's. Jeremy Simpkins, when we heard him speak at the Christ Central Sunday a month or so ago, a few weeks ago, this was the parable he told, wasn't it, at the pearl of great price. You give over everything. It's, it all becomes God's. And Nehemiah is saying to them, you're just stewards of God's money. And if you can afford to lend the money to your own people, to God's people, why aren't you therefore giving it as a gift? He's challenging them as stewards. You're using God's money for your own gain at the cost of the community instead of for the community's gain at your own cost. And he says to them, essentially, when he says, don't you fear God, what will the master say when he finds out how you have been using his stuff? Don't you fear God? Uh, and when they see it in that light, the wealthy, they've got no response. They don't say anything. They just totally change their ways. This is, in a sense, a parallel to the story of Zacchaeus, who was a very little man who climbed up a sycamore tree, encounters the grace of God in Jesus and totally transforms his ways. That is, this is the story that's just like that. And so that's the story that we've read. And now we're going to make the step from addressing economic injustice to addressing racial injustice. Are you ready? I really need some nods because I recognise I'm moving at a pace uh, and I'm uh, covering some heavy ground. This is a big undertaking, and it can only be the start of the conversation. Did I do this bit already? Uh, I want to encourage you, please continue this conversation after today. I'm not trying to have the final word here. You need to continue the conversation with God. You need to continue the conversation with each other. Please continue the conversation with me. If I say something that you don't understand or that... Um, you would like to challenge. I'm very open to having a conversation about it. I'm very aware that I'm operating today 
from an understanding of justice and what justice is that I don't really have time to spell out. Uh, but what it does do is it breaks our political spectrum. So sometimes what I'm about to say will make it sound like I'm sitting firmly on the left. Sometimes I'm going to sound like I'm sitting on the right, but I'm not sitting in either camp and I'm not sitting in the centre. I'm coming from an understanding of kingdom justice that refuses to be locked into our 21st century political polarisation. And it's really important you get that. But what that means is if this is new to you, if you don't understand where I'm coming from, please don't just sit there and write me off as at the other end of the spectrum from you. I'm not even on the spectrum. And I'd really welcome the opportunity to explain that and talk more about that with you. So start of the conversation. Let's begin here. On the 25th of May, 2020, a police officer knelt for over eight minutes on the neck of George Floyd, killing him in the middle of a Minneapolis street. You probably remember. Over the following days and weeks, there was a great outcry over the injustice of police brutality against people of color in America. In this country, because our context is different, the great outcry that went around the world prompted the biggest public conversation about racism since the murder of Stephen Lawrence in 1993, when he was on the way home from his uncle's house and whilst changing buses was stabbed in the middle of a street in a racist attack. On hearing this great outcry, everyone, you and I, like Nehemiah, were confronted with a choice. Will we feel the pain of injustice? Or will we be defensive and dismissive? You know, for Nehemiah, I said the very fabric of the people of God was under threat. Injustice was getting in the way of completing the mission and was distorting their identity as the people of God. Nehemiah couldn't turn his blind eye. That was the point I made. And the point I want to make for us is that racial injustice is getting in the way of our mission and it's undermining our identity as the people of God. Friends, the stakes here are incredibly high. Nehemiah chooses to feel the pain of the poor who are being oppressed and he teaches us that we must humbly allow ourselves to feel the pain which is caused by injustice in our day, including racism, and to say like Nehemiah, it is not right. Let's go through together those same things that Nehemiah goes through. The law. Deuteronomy 24 verse 17 says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Zechariah was a prophet who prophesied into the community who returned from exile. This is just a few decades before uh, Nehemiah. And in Zechariah 7, verses 8 to 10, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. And for the Old Testament, where it talks about foreigner, it's talking about those from another place, from another culture, from another race. And to be honest, it's not very helpful language for our conversation, but it is the language of the Old Testament where it's speaking to this issue. It's clearly against the law that God has set out as to how creation works. 
simply this, to discriminate on the basis of skin color denies the foundational truth that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore every human being has equal dignity and worth. I don't think many of us are going to disagree with that. Here's some statistics. In the year to March 2018, black people were 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched by police than white people in the UK. And you might think, oh, no, no, that's just a London thing. You need to understand that the London figures are not as bad as that, which means the rest of the country is worse than that. If found in possession of drugs, for example, this is just the statistics I found, a black person is five times more likely to be charged rather than cautioned or warned than a white person, given the same history and the same situation. It's not just the police. In 2009, the Department for Work and Pensions sent identical job applications to a number of employers. The only distinctive difference was the name of the candidate. They either sounded white British or they didn't. Guess what? White British sounding names were called to interview far more than identically qualified and experienced African or Asian sounding names. I could list example and statistic after data and study. I really could. The reality is, and I probably don't need to argue the point that hard in this place, though we could, our society discriminates on the basis of race, and that is an injustice. And I want you to note here, it's really important. In Nehemiah, the rich are not evil people. They're not cackling away in some smoky room about how much they hate the poor. You know, it's not Scrooge McDuck diving into pools full of coins, laughing at the peasants outside. No, the wealthy, they're just following the normal economic practices of the world around them. Rennie Edo Lodge, she's a lady who wrote the book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. She says, it is never a case of innocent and pure persecuted people of colour versus white people intent on evil and malice. That's not the case. Rather, this is about how Britain's relationship with race infects and distorts equal opportunity. Friends, the poor in Nehemiah did not have a chance. They just didn't have a chance. The whole system was set up against them. Their wealthy brothers and sisters did not help them. They carried on as normal, contributing to the injustice, and they made it worse. So when we hear the outcry and when we feel the pain of racial injustice, we need to recognise that it is legitimate and that it is not OK. It's not what God wants. It violates his creation. Secondly, Nehemiah talks to the Jews about their identity and we need to switch our focus to the church because just as the Jews were violating their identity as a freed people by forcing their own people to sell their children into slavery, the church in the UK in our day is not living up to its God-given identity. And rather than pointing out loads of examples of flaws, what I want to do is to spell out from scripture what our God-given identity is. 
So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. It says, his purpose, and his here is Jesus. Jesus's purpose. I'll let that hang in the air for a moment. Jesus's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is talking about Jews and Gentiles. It was the example of racial discrimination to the world that Paul was writing to. And what he's saying is a church with any kind of racial division, a church without complete racial reconciliation is falling short of the glorious church that Jesus was nailed to a cross for. This is not a side topic. It is as central as it comes. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Are we living with the humility and kindness and compassion for that to be true of us? Friends, there is a great outcry and we need to consider what is our response? Because if in Christ all division is removed, are we doing the necessary work to dismantle the unconscious bias that divides different races in the world around us? Let me put it a different way. Is our thinking being renewed to resemble God's normal rather than the normal of the world that we live in? Have we asked God to help change our thinking? This isn't about being colorblind. Oh, very important. Being colorblind, colorblind is to deny God's good purpose in creating us different. In uniting every nation, tribe, people and language before the throne of Jesus. The vision of heaven that we have is not colorblind. We are supposed to see colour. We are just not supposed to make assumptions and judgments of people based on the colour of their skin or the way their name sounds or the culture that they're from. But we do. All the time. It's called unconscious bias because 99% of the time we just don't realise it's there. Those of us who are white, who are part of the majority culture, we assume that the way we do things, the way we speak, the way we interact, the way we respond to one another, the way we dress, worship, shop, the way we comfort the grieving or celebrate milestones, we feel like and we think and we approach it as if all of that is normal. And so when people start to deviate from that normal, we make a string of assumptions and value judgments about them. It's what our society does, and I think it's what we do. And when we do that on repeat, it develops a system that advantages people who are like us, and it disadvantages people who are not like us. And that divides us when we are supposed to be united. I hope we don't just want to be a diverse church. We've used that language in the past. We don't just want to be diverse because to di be diverse just means there are different races, languages and backgrounds present in one room together. 
or one Zoom call together. Now, we would like to be a, an inclusive church. The call is to be a church where there is no barrier between different races, different languages and different backgrounds. Where difference is treasured and valued and learned from. It doesn't cause separation. We are not looking to conform people to a particular expression of white middle class Christianity, though if we're honest, that has sadly too often been the case. And as leaders, I want to take the opportunity to say we are deeply sorry where the way we have led and the things we have formed have conformed people to be a particular way rather than to be the fullness of who God has made them to be. Our desire is to see a church community built where people of all races can belong, not just attend. Can find genuine family across our differences, where people of all races are equipped and empowered and released to serve in their gifts and their call, both in the church and outside the church, and to shape and to lead and to teach and to love and to serve this church as God builds us to be all that is in his heart. That is the picture of Ephesians 2. It, Paul finishes, he says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, members of his one household, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. We've got to feel the pain. We've got to recognise the situation. We've got to know the identity of the church. Thirdly, we've got to consider our witness. To not be doing this is an awful witness. Friends, the church is called to be the example. It's called to be the model. It's called to be the prophetic demonstration of the future kingdom on earth today to show the world what God is like. That is the call. And so, friends, the church is the arena that we have to fight for this in. We can't wait for or even expect government or media or education to sort it out for us. This isn't something that the sands of time will shift and we just need to wait. And one day this won't be an issue anymore. No, this was the purpose. This was Jesus's purpose in being nailed to the cross. This is our inheritance. This is our call to be the glorious, reconciled church that the world might see the beauty and the brilliance of our God. This isn't just about a few people of different races in our little church being involved more. This has eternal significance for the whole human race. The stakes, friends, are huge. I said that the wealthy were using God's finances because all money is his for their own advantage at the community's cost when they should have been using it for the community's advantage at their own cost. Friends, it's not just our money that's God's. It's our influence. It's our cultural power. It's our relationships. It's our employment. It's our education, our gifts and natural advantages. It's our societal position. 
everything we have is God's. And so if we use the things that he has entrusted to us for our own gain at the cost of the community, instead of for the community's gain at our own cost, friends, we are swimming in very, very dangerous water. Our example is Jesus, who gave up everything for the good of those that didn't have what he had. He was willing to lose it all. He was willing to lay down his power, his influence, his authority. He became nothing. He even suffered in order that good might be done to us. So if we can hear the great outcry, and if we feel the pain, what is the way forward? First, I think we need to choose to feel. You know, maybe we felt in May or June, but do we feel the pain of the injustice now? Because it still exists. It requires humility to sit in that place. I tuned in to a webinar a few weeks ago from York St. John University. They had a black author named Jeffrey Boyacci, and he was talking about his books, which are about black culture and this kind of thing. And he said a couple of things that really help us at this point. Number one, that we have to feel before we can truly think. Which applies throughout the whole of life. It's the parable of the man riding an elephant. You know, who's really in charge? Is it the man that is about our intellect and our thinking, or is it the elephant which is about our heart and our desires? The elephant is going to go where the elephant wants to go. And there's something about we've got to feel before we can truly think. The second thing he said was very provocative. He said, if you've had a strong feeling and an emotional response to the death of George Floyd, you have a choice. Do you dampen that? Or do you turn that feeling into responsibility? And so that's my second point, is that we need to take responsibility. And first of all, that means learning, it means reading, means listening, means watching, considering, asking. Personally, I've had to come to terms with the fact that there is a lot I don't know. And more than that, that a lot of what I think I know is wrong or at best partial. Friends, that is a very humbling realisation. After George Floyd was killed, Pete and I, we felt that before speaking about it, we needed to learn. We, we made a, a comment Pete did before he's preached the following Sunday uh, about how wrong it was. But we really felt that we had to do some learning before we could really comment on it. It's why I'm only speaking about this now in November when it happened in May. And one of the things we've done is we've set out to listen to people of colour in our lives. We've set out to listen to their stories, their perspectives, their experiences, including at hope. Uh, we've both been deeply humbled and challenged in that process. It's been uncomfortable listening at times. But I'm so glad that we've done it. Uh, and we're both committed to continuing to do it. 
I'll be honest with you, as I've learned, I've had to go back and realise that although I had felt the injustice in some areas, I had been defensive and dismissive. And I've had to let go of that to allow myself to feel the true breadth or more of the breadth. I don't think I'm there of what this injustice means. How have I done that? I've said, God, help me. I've recognised that my thinking needs renewing. I've reminded myself that my security is in Jesus, not in being right, nor in being a good person, nor in feeling comfortable in the world around me. And if my identity is truly in Jesus and my security is truly in him, then I can be brave and I can allow the shortcomings in my life and thinking to be highlighted and addressed. I'm almost there. Third. Third, we need to act. You can feel, you can think, but the reality is when there's injustice in play, we need to act. And Nehemiah took radical action to cut the poison of economic injustice out of the people of God in Jerusalem. Nehemiah chose to use his own advantages for the good of the community at his own expense. That's what that final section of chapter five is all about. I never claimed the food I could have taken from them, even though I was in charge, even though I was giving myself to building the wall and so had no chance to farm either. So as we choose to act, we need to consider our sphere of influence. Because I'm not sure any of us, you might be watching in YouTube and have the power to truly influence national policy. But we need to consider, first of all, our sphere of influence. And the first place that we have influence over is our own heads. And our thinking. That's why learning is so important. The second place we have influence over is our personal actions. It's our homes, our friendship groups. We have influence. Every single one of us has influence in this church. We have influence in our workplaces and in whatever wider social involvement we have. Where we have influence, action means choosing to use it. It means choosing to widen our scope and perspective beyond our portion of normal and to recognise the complexity of human life and to stay there even though it's uncomfortable. One of the things I've realised as I've listened to people and read is that if you're from a minority culture, that's what you have to do all the time and in every place. It's uncomfortable. You realise life is complex and you have to realise that there's just this mishmash and collision of stuff and you have to sit there and take it. And when you're in the majority culture, you don't. You can just sideline everything. The problem is that in sidelining, you perpetuate and increase the injustice. Friends, we have to get used to complexity and being uncomfortable. To act means in core to speak up when something's not right. It means asking when we're not sure. It means spending time with people and investing in relationships with people who are not like us. Challenging our own assumptions and value judgments. Unpicking and dismantling our prejudices. 
Here you go. Let me get more specific. If you're an employer, it means taking the challenge of the DWP experiment seriously. Do you unconsciously discriminate on name? Read the CV again. No one's saying you're being evil or a bad, horrible motive for what you do it. But has something so affected your thinking that you judge the two differently? Be honest. Read the CV again. If you're a parent, which is perhaps the position of most influence in our world, how do you talk to your children about other cultures, languages, skin colours? Even more importantly, how do you speak about people of other cultures, languages and skin colours? Would your children understand from the way that you speak and act that every human being is made in the image of God and is equal in worth and dignity? If you're a teacher, research says that pupils from minority cultures in the UK are consistently, unconsciously undermarked throughout their school life. Why don't you consider for a moment if unconscious bias could be influencing your grading and assessment? Read the work again. Imagine it was done by that conscientious white girl who sits at the front. I'm, I'm trying to give explicit examples because it's kind of important to bottom this out for us. I can't give an example for everyone. And I'm certainly not picking on those people groups. It's not just uh, employers and parents and teachers that are uh, continuing the injustice. Uh, ultimately, what I'm talking about here, friends, is kindness. Intentional, proactive, courageous kindness. Choosing to use what you've been given for the good of others at your own cost. Kindness. To consider the good of others above yourself. Kindness is a fruit of the spirit. So you know where to go if you feel like you need more. In summary, hear the great cry against injustice. Humbly feel the pain of that injustice. Friends, we need to get out of our comfort zones and learn about the injustice. And then we need to act with courageous kindness, knowing that it is going to cost us. And this isn't just about fairness and equality, friends. This is about seeing the church become the reconciled church that Jesus was nailed to the cross for so that she can be the prophetic example to the world around her of what God is like. Can I pray? Father, we're so thankful for your word that cuts to the very heart, separates bone and marrow. We thank you that your word is alive, that it speaks from two and a half thousand years ago through into our day. Lord, we're so challenged by the presence of injustice in our world and we're so sad about the way it infiltrates your church. God, we are asking you for help today to change our thinking. We're asking for your help today to highlight injustice where we're still blind to it. We're asking today for you to cause a great harvest of kindness in our lives that we might be those who cross the divide because of Jesus' the empowerment in our lives, 
that the church would be free from division along racial and cultural lines and instead would be reconciled just as Jesus was nailed to the cross for. We recognise, God, this isn't something we can humanly do. We need your help, but with your help, we need to act. And so, Father, we pray for your help by your spirit this morning. And we pray that you would transform your church to be this prophetic example, which you've called her to be. That you would cause hope to become a prophetic example to Harrogate and Knaresborough and Weatherby and the towns and villages in which we live. In Jesus' name. Amen.